Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. So the same confrontation of the truth of who Jesus is, if rejected, will result in this crushing judgment. And so, again, you can't remain neutral. It's either you're broken before Jesus and and then he makes you whole, or you are stubborn and resistant and proud and you'll experience one day the judgment of God. That's your choice. It's one or the other. And by far... It is better now to be broken than to be crushed later. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 1 Peter. When you're confronted by the truth of Christ, you can't be neutral. Today, Pastor Gary explains that you have two choices. You can come home before Christ broken, which is a good thing, and He makes you whole. Or you're stubborn, resistant, and proud, and you'll one day experience the judgment of God. You need to be broken before the Lord and die to yourself. Those who don't receive Him will suffer crushing judgment. It's one or the other. You can't have it both ways. It's better to be broken now and accept Jesus than face His wrath later. What is your choice? At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 1 Peter chapter 1 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. First Peter chapter 2 is where we left off in our study last week, uh, right around verse 4, verse 5. So uh, let's get a little bit of a, a running start where he tells us in chapter 2, verse 4, coming to him, that is Jesus, as to a living stone, circle that word stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also like living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, and therefore it is also contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, you can circle that, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. So this is where we left off last week, and Peter's basically reminding us that Jesus Christ is like a stone. He is the rock upon whom we build our lives, our salvation. Uh, the church is built on the rock of Jesus Christ. And so there's this, this, um, this parallel here, this imagery about Christ like a stone. And it's not the only time he's going to use this imagery. He, he says stone in verse 4. He says, 
cornerstone uh, in verse 6. He says in verse 7, the word stone again, the word cornerstone again. Verse 8, he says stone again. He says rock. And so, you know, there's this imagery here of Christ like like this rock, like like the foundation. But he adds there in verse 5 that you and I also, like living stones, are being built into the spiritual house. So it's this idea that Christ is the cornerstone. Again, that's where we get our name derived after our Lord. So, so, but Christ as the cornerstone, the cornerstone of a building was what you set the rest of the structure by. And so you have to lay the cornerstone properly and correctly in order to be able to build the building uh, in, in the right way and in the right dimension. So everything is built off of the cornerstone. That's the starting point. And that's what Peter's saying here. Our faith is built on Christ. The church is built on Christ. We form this spiritual building, but it is really all about Jesus. And the wonderful thing that he ends there, verse 6 concerning, which is where we ended last week, was one of the wonderful things about coming to faith in Christ is he does not shame us. You know, we, we tend to do that with each other, and, and we shouldn't. But Jesus never does that with us. And he never reminds us of what we've done. He never drudges up the past. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 says, love keeps no record of wrongs. We, we tragically do that with each other. But how many of you are thankful Jesus never does that with you and me, right? He never brings up the past. He never shames us. He, because what does he do? He graces us. You know, he is, he is grace and truth personified. So when we come into relationship with Jesus, he graces us. The opposite of which is to disgrace. When we disgrace someone, we are shaming them. That's not the way Jesus operates. And so Peter here is quoting from Old Testament scripture. He talks about how Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He's precious. And we who believe in him will by no means be put to shame. So keep reading in verse 7. Therefore, to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, well, he's going to quote scripture again from the Old Testament, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. So let's unpack this a little bit. Again, the imagery continues. Jesus being referred to as a stone, a cornerstone, a rock. Now he's drawing this from Psalm 118. And in Psalm 118, I'll just turn there real quickly. You can too with me if you'd like. In Psalm 118, um, there's a messianic verse related to uh, Jesus. And uh, in Psalm 118, in verse 22, it says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, why would the psalmist be saying it's a beautiful day, a wonderful day when, the, when a cornerstone is rejected? Because it's messianic imagery. He's talking here about the time when Christ the Messiah will come and tragically will be rejected, but that's all part of God's plan in that when Christ comes to die for our sins on, on, on the cross, there will be those who reject him, but at the same time, there will be those who accept him. And this is all the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And that Christ as the cornerstone, Christ as the rock, Christ as a stone, will have one of two effects upon people. 
So back here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, Therefore you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus actually uses the same language to describe himself in Matthew's gospel chapter 21. And what Jesus does is he quotes Psalm 118, what we just read a moment ago. So I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 21, and I'm going to tie it all together, how Jesus even uses the same language to describe himself. And when Jesus unpacks Psalm 118 and basically says, this applies to me, the language that he uses is quite sobering. So Matthew chapter 21, Jesus is having a confrontation with some of the religious leaders who have rejected him. And so he confronts him in Matthew 21, teaches a parable about the wicked vine dressers. They end up realizing, oh, he's talking about us. And in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus in verse 42, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? And now here's where he quotes from Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. In other words, this was God, Yahweh, this was God's design, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So he's quoting Psalm 118, but now look at the commentary that Jesus adds in, in verse 43. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Now, remember, the audience he's talking to are the religious Jews who have rejected him. So Jesus is basically opening up the idea here that the kingdom is going to be extended to the Gentiles. You guys have rejected it, and it's not that God's done with the Jewish people. He's not in at all. But that now open, in addition to the Jewish people, are the Gentiles, i.e. the whole world. And so Jesus says there, he says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever, listen to this, whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. All right, now go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's tie all this together. So Peter is quoting from Psalm 118. Jesus quotes from Psalm 118 in Matthew 21. And the idea behind the commentary that Jesus adds to Psalm 118, which points to himself, is that the effect of, of, of the truth of Jesus confronting an individual will either result in that person being broken, which is not a bad thing, it's actually a good thing, and or crushed to powder. That's a bad thing. So what is he saying? What he's saying is, and this is true for every single one of us, when we are confronted with the truth of Christ, you can't be neutral on this, okay? The idea that Jesus dies on a cross for the sins of the whole world, that he's the Savior and the only Savior, and Jesus himself came, died on a cross, and says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He didn't say, I'm a way among many. There's one way. And that one way is Jesus. So you have to either take him literally at his word, which means that he's either saying something completely true or that he's a liar. So depending on how a person responds to the truth of Jesus is the difference between whether that person will be broken. In other words, because when you are confronted with the truth of Jesus, you just, you, you break. You have that experience when you come to faith in Christ? You just become a broken person. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. 
You know, we, we devalue things that are broken in our culture. Things that get broken end up in a yard sale. Am I right? Things that get broken end up in a dumpster and somebody goes diving for it and repairs it. But otherwise, it's considered of no value. Things that are broken are of no value. In God's economy of things, things which are broken have tremendous value. Because when we become broken before God, humbled before him, when we then die to self and we surrender our lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ, which takes a breaking, that takes a humbling, that takes a breaking of our pride and breaking of our self-sufficiency and breaking of our, of our, of our selfishness and just you know, being broken before God and humbling ourselves and coming to him and receiving him as savior and, and receiving his forgiveness and all of that, that requires a breaking and that's a good thing. So, so that's one reaction. But then there's this other reaction, and Jesus says, but whoever does not receive me, it's, they're going to be crushed to powder. So the same confrontation of the truth of who Jesus is, if rejected, will result in this crushing judgment. And so, again, you can't remain neutral. It's either you're broken before Jesus, and, and then he makes you whole, or you are stubborn and resistant and proud and you'll experience one day the judgment of God. That's your choice. It's one or the other. And by far, it is better now to be broken than to be crushed later. Does anybody agree, right? It's better to be broken now. Just humble yourself. Come to the place of surrender. Stop playing games with God. Stop being so full of yourself and arrogant and proud and, and think that you, you're fine all by yourself. We need a savior, and until you get to the bottom of yourself and realize that, pride is going to be the greatest hindrance for you ever coming to faith in Christ. But when we humble ourselves and when we are broken before him, then God takes broken vessels and makes us whole. So that's all what what Peter is saying here. That's what Jesus meant in Matthew 21. He's tying it all together here. And, and then he adds there at the end of verse 8, they stumble, in other words, the ones who have rejected Christ, they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Now, when he says they were appointed, that, that doesn't mean they were appointed to damnation. What it means is that if you reject the word of God, which presents the truth of who Jesus is, then you will reject the truth of who Jesus is, and then you will suffer the consequences for it. So it's, it's going to be the natural consequence of rejecting Christ and, uh, and, and experiencing that, that, that judgment. So he goes on to say, but, verse 9, to encourage believers, to encourage the recipients of his letter, but you are a chosen generation. You know, in other words, because you have humbled yourself. You've been broken before the Lord. You've received Christ as your Savior. So guess what? He says, this is what, this is what Christ has conferred upon you. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So he uses this language here about chosen generation, royal priesthood, holy nation. Those terms were almost always exclusively a reference only to the Jewish people. 
And he, he says now, overall, to anybody, Jew or Gentile alike, who receives Christ, you become a special people unto the Lord. Now, it's not a closed group. As many as, many as received him, to them that believed on his name, he gave the right to become sons of God, children of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, okay, so it's not a closed group. It's exclusive in the sense that it's the belief centered around the fact that there's one and only one Savior, and his name is Jesus, but it is, the group is open to all. Whosoever believes shall receive. And he says, to that end, then you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a people, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, called out of darkness. You know, before we come to know Christ, we're just living in darkness. That's what it is. And 1 John 1, 5 says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So darkness is just a picture of the world, the deception of the world, the, the unfulfillment of the world, just everything that goes with the world system. And he, and he says, this is what God has brought us out of. He's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We, we didn't belong to him, but now we belong to him. There's nothing, there's nothing worse than not belonging. And there's nothing quite better than that sense of belonging. And so he, he's saying here, he says, once we're not a people, but now you are a people. You've obtained mercy. You belong to God. And so because of all this, notice how he transitions now into verse 11. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Okay, so do you see how he's building on everything that we just already looked at? He's talking about here, Christ is the rock, he's the cornerstone, he, he is the stone upon which our salvation is built and the church is built Salvation that was gained freely. God's delivered us out of darkness. He's brought us into the kingdom of the Son whom He loves. We've now been taken from darkness into the light and all this wonderful stuff. Uh, None of us deserved it. We couldn't earn it. This is what God did for us, free gift. And then He goes, now, I beg you. That's how verse 11 starts. Beloved, I beg you. You're sojourners. You're pilgrims. He uses this terminology to remind us, this is not our home. Don't get too comfortable here. Do not get comfortable here. The writer of Hebrews says something similar in Hebrews eleven thirteen. He calls He calls us strangers and pilgrims. We're passing through. This language is often repeated in Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, to remind us we have got to stop acting like the world. You have been brought out of a dark world. Stop acting like it. This is challenging. Man, I want all of us to really take this stuff to heart. We are to live as sojourners, pilgrims, foreigners, aliens. We're passing through. We don't belong here. You should feel a little uncomfortable and awkward like you don't fit in. If you feel too comfortable and you feel too much like you fit in, Something's wrong. Now, you know, let me just illustrate this. 
If you've ever traveled overseas to a foreign country and you've been totally taken out of your element, your culture, your language, you, you know a little bit about what I'm talking about in terms of a sense of awkwardness. I don't really belong. I don't know the language. So this past July, um, I was invited to speak at a, a global missions conference for One Hope in Thailand. And so Terry went with me. It was the first time we'd ever been to Thailand. And talk about feeling completely out of place. Didn't look like them. I'm just a little bit white. Uh, I, I, I didn't know the language. Um, I like Thai food, except what I found out when I go to Thailand is Thai food in Thailand is like a hundred times spicier than Thai food in America. So every place we'd go at a restaurant, I'd be like, just give me whatever's in coconut milk. That's all I want. Whatever's in coconut. I don't want anything spicy. Just give me the coconut. And they're like, okay, okay, coconut milk. Gotcha, got no spice. No, no spice. And even the stuff in coconut milk, my mouth was on fire fire. But the whole time there, you know, look, you're, you're out of place in, in the sense of this is unfamiliar. I don't know the language. I don't know the culture, you know, the, the money it, it's bots and, and it's, and it's like 300 bots to a dollar. So then, you know, like, like a, a little, a little, um, those little, I forget what they call them. Um, those little bicycle, uh, taxis, I forget, what are they called? Tut tuts, yeah, right? To- something, all right. See, I don't even know. It was like three bucks, but they're like that's nine hundred dollars. Nine bots, nine hundred bots. They're like, this is so confusing. I don't, I don't know how to translate. I don't know. I don't know anything about the culture. I feel strangely out of place. But by the way, wonderful people, the Thai people. I've never met people who smile more than the people of Thailand. And, and I even said something to, to one of the uh, ladies who was hosting us. I said, I have never been around people who smile as much as you. And, and she says, why do you think, and, and I, didn't even, I didn't even pay attention, why do you think the official airlines of Thailand is called Smile Airlines? The official airlines of Thailand is Smile Airlines. The, the happiest people, smiling about everything. But I was completely out of my element. And I was painfully aware of it too. Not, a, not in a bad sense. It was a, it was a wonderful experience, but just in the sense of it became painfully obvious when you are taken from what is familiar and comfortable in your language and your culture and your food and your bed and everything, and you're put somewhere around, literally around the other side of the world. You don't speak the language. You, everything is foreign to you in every way. You just feel a little strangely out of place. That's how it should be for us. We are living in a foreign country as Christians in the sense that this world is not our home. So we should feel at times a little bit like, I don't quite fit in. I don't get the lingo. I don't understand all of, you know, what they might do and how they might live and places they might go. And so it should, it should affect us like this. Uh, I, I, I am troubled as Christians we have certain liberties. I get that. But if, if your liberties are at the expense of your witness, that's not liberty at all. That's hypocrisy. Amen. And we need to start living as men and women who love Jesus and let that be seen and displayed 
and the way that we conduct ourselves and the way that we speak and the way that we socialize in the places that we go so that people can see we truly have been delivered out of darkness into the kingdom of the light of the son whom God loves because our salvation was purchased for us at a very high price, the blood of Jesus Christ. So let's stop trampling the blood of Jesus and live for his glory. Thanks for tuning in today for Pastor Gary Hamrick's verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Peter, here on Cornerstone Connection. We're glad we're able to bring you these teachings straight from God's Word. But we're even more glad you chose to spend time with us today. We love hearing from our listeners, so please give us a call if you have a moment. Our phone number here is 703-771-1500. When you call, let us know how we can be lifting you up in prayer. Again, our number is 703-771-1500. If you missed any part of this broadcast or would like to explore more of Pastor Gary's teachings as he's been working his way through the Bible, we invite you to visit cornerstoneconnection.cc. Our entire archive is available there. Just look under the Teachings tab. You can also download our mobile app to connect with Scripture whenever and wherever you happen to be. There's a link to that under the teaching tab, too. We'd love to have you join us at Cornerstone Chapel this weekend. Come spend some time in God's presence as we worship and exalt Him in praise and dig deeper into the truth found in the pages of the Bible. To find out more and get service times, check out cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have time for in today's study of 1 Peter. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know